2: You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.
4: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanStories.com. There's some of our favorites. And up next, we continue with our recurring series about the curious origins of everyday sayings. Here to join us again is Andrew Thompson, as he continues to share another slice from his ultimate guide to understanding these many mysteries of the English language.
5: In a nutshell means concisely, or in a few words. You might say to someone, just tell me in a nutshell. And it's said to originate from the ancient story described in 17 AD by the Roman scholar Pliny the Elder. The story goes that the philosopher Cicero witnessed a copy of Homer's epic poem, the Iliad, written onto a piece of parchment and enclosed into the shell of a walnut. Obviously this is impossible, but it is believed that important documents were folded and inserted into walnut shells and bound, so that they were waterproof and could be taken long distances without damaging them. Shakespeare referred to the expression in his 1603 play Hamlet, and that immortalised the expression. Inner shambles means a state of complete disorder or ruin, and it derives from the open-air meat-sellers of medieval times. The word shambles derives from the Old English word meaning footstool, which came from the Latin word meaning small bench. Most towns at that time in England had streets designated to a single type of vendor. There were streets for grocers, streets for bread sellers, butchers, who all offered their wares from street-side workbenches. These streets were known as shambles, but it was the butchers that became particularly associated with the term As they were supplied directly by the slaughterhouses, the meat shambles were renowned for being a complete mess of blood and offcuts. By the 1400s, the word shambles had become synonymous with general mess and disorder. And the town of York in England to this day has a street called shambles. In cold blood means deliberately and without emotion and is often related to murders. For example, he murdered the man in cold blood It is an expression that dates from the early 18th century and began with the belief that a person's blood heated up when an act of great emotional passion was committed. This was based on the reddening of the face and the feeling of heat that a person experienced. It was thought that when one could carry out a violent crime without excitement or emotional involvement the person was acting in cold blood. The term was first used in the English publication The Spectator in 1711. To say something is in the bag means a successful outcome is absolutely certain. And while there are different theories on the origins of the phrase, including those relating to baseball and hunting, the early days of the British Parliament is the likely birthplace. On the back of the speaker's chair in Parliament hung a velvet bag, and all successful petitions that were brought before the House of Commons would be placed in that bag. Because it was known that all such petitions had been successful, they became known as in the bag. If you say to someone, I'm in the doghouse, it usually means you're disgraced and out of favour, usually said by a husband to a wife. And in the doghouse is a phrase that has literary origins. It derives from J.M. Barrie's 1904 book, Peter Pan. Mr. Darling, the children's father in the book, is particularly unpleasant to Nana, the family dog. His children then fly off with Peter Pan, and as a self-imposed punishment for his behaviour, he goes out to live in the doghouse until the children return from Neverland. Peter Pan was obviously a very popular book, and as a result, the expression quickly came into widespread usage. If you say, in the doldrums, or you're feeling in the doldrums, it means to feel unmotivated or depressed, and it relates to a region by that name which is located slightly north of the equator, between two belts of wind. Sailors used the term because winds there met and neutralised each other, which resulted in ships becoming stranded and sitting around idly, virtually unable to sail. Many assume that the expression comes from the name of the region, but it's actually that the region came to be named because of its nature. Doldrum comes from the Old English word dole, meaning dull, and that led on to the word doldrum, and the phrase was then used in the figurative sense by the early 19th century. In the groove is an expression which means to function perfectly or with little effort, and it stems from the early vinyl record days. Records are made with a number of grooves cut into the material where the music is recorded. The record is played by a stylus or needle, which must sit neatly in the groove to ensure good sound quality. If a stylus is worn, making its tip too wide, it will not sit in the groove and the sound will become distorted. Equally, if the record is scratched, the stylus may slip out of the groove and the record won't play. The phrase took on its idiomatic qualities with the arrival of jazz in the 1920s. The free-spirited nature of jazz bands and the way they played with each other led people to describe them as in the groove. In the limelight means at the centre of attention. You may say, John loves being in the limelight. And this is one of the very first phrases I ever learnt. It has its origins in the theatre. When calcium oxide, more commonly known as lime, is heated it produces an intense white light and this process was first used to effect by a man named Thomas Drummond in the 1820s. He was a Scottish army engineer who used heated lime as an aid in map making because of the bright light was visible at a distance. The technique was then adopted in theatres to illuminate the stage and was first used in Covent Garden in London in 1837. The actors who were the centre of attention on the stage were said to be standing in the limelight, and that saying now applies to anyone who is the focus of attention. If you say something is in the offing, you mean it is likely to happen soon or is imminent. And It's a nautical expression originating in the early 1600s that came into widespread usage by the late 1700s. The offing is that part of the sea that is visible from or off the shore, the area between the shore and the horizon. In other words, a ship that was in the offing was within sight.
4: And a special thanks to Greg Hengler for the production on the piece, and a special thanks to Andrew Thompson hair of the dog to paint the town red, the curious origins of everyday sayings and fun phrases. Go to Amazon.com or any of the usual suspects. The story of the English language, or at least its curious sayings and phrases here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, And we're back with our American stories. And up next, a story about an art museum in Somerville, Massachusetts. But this art museum has a bit of a twist. Here's Louise Riley Sacco with a story.
6: I'm Louise Riley Sacco, and I'm the permanent acting interim executive director of the Museum of Bad Art. In 1993, Scott Wilson, an arts and antiques dealer, noticed a framed picture leaning against a trash barrel, waiting for the collection truck to come by. The painting is a woman in a field of flowers, and she's the wind seems to be blowing the flowers one way and her clothes a different direction. She's either sitting in a chair or standing, that's unclear, and the sky is yellow. It is a very compelling painting but it's, it's puzzling. Scott really liked the frame, and he was planning to throw out the painting, clean up the frame, and sell it. But his friends, Jerry Riley and Mari Jackson, told him, you can't throw that out. It's so bad, it's good. And they hung it in their house. And that, that was the start of this whole thing. After that, Scott and other friends kept an eye out for really bad paintings in thrift stores, yard sales, things like that and this collection kind of took on a life of its own. Jerry and Mari had a party. What it was was a housewarming party, and we had hung the paintings in around their basement and put up descriptions next to each one, narratives just uh, explaining what we saw in the pieces. And it was going to be a one-time event, and then it just never stopped. <laughs> the next morning, We decided that we needed to keep this going and continue the the Museum of Bad Art, never dreaming in 1993 that this would still be going today. And it took a while and some talking and figuring on how to do that. And one of the um, moments that I always remember is we had a, there were five of us early on, and we had a time when we were kind of saying, wait a minute, is this just the five of us who think this is interesting? You know, maybe... There is no, no wider audience for it. Someone had the insight that if you're walking past an art gallery with a group of people and someone says, wow, look at that, until you turn around and look, you don't know if it's going to be really bad or really good. But either way, there's this instinct to share it and talk about it and have fun with it. And we decided we needed to be the people to plug into that. People in the early days just left the art or mailed it to us and we ended up with a lot that we didn't want because we do have standards. And our standards are pretty basic. One thing is it's gotta be art. And to us that means it needs to be sincere and original and somebody trying to make an artistic statement of some sort, but something went wrong in a way that makes it interesting, compelling, worth talking about. We don't collect Kitsch. We don't. There's no no velvet paintings, no big-eyed children or dogs playing poker. None of that. No paint by numbers. And it just has to be that our curator, Michael, um, that Mike feels like something went wrong. It can be a very skilled artist who's trying something new or who just just missed something and it got messed up. Or for instance, selected a topic that just didn't lend itself to painting. Or it could be someone who barely knows which end of the paintbrush to pick up. The heart and soul is there and they, they just didn't have the skills to pull it off. The sincerity is apparent. You know, People try to make a piece to get into our museum and you can usually see right through it that this was someone just you know trying to, to make something bad. That doesn't uh, have the appeal of a sincere work. We have almost 800 pieces all together. We've never had room to show more than 25 or 30 at a time. But a couple of my favorites from over the years, there's a piece called Sunday on the Pot with George. It's a pointillist piece. And I'm not an artist, but from what I understand, pointillism is hard, you know, all those little tiny dots to make an image. And this image is a portly man sitting apparently on a toilet with a towel draped over him. And as we say, the artist ran out of canvas before he got to the feet. The feet are not shown. It's a big piece. And all these little dots of paint and all the thought that goes into it, why would you do spend all that effort on this subject, a portly man sitting on a toilet? I mean, it's just baffling. Um, so I, I love that, that one for that reason. Another one I'm very fond of is called Sensitive a small yellow piece and heavy black letters say sensitive, going in different directions, but it's this big sort of insensitive, sensitive. And there's a little cartoon with stick figures that a man is offering his heart to a woman and she takes it and throws it on the ground and stomps on it. So it makes me picture a conversation where this man is saying sensitive you want sensitive I'll show you sensitive and paints this insensitive piece with the word sensitives you know in black paint across the middle of it so the, I mean and, and on that piece it, one of the things that makes it so appealing is there's so much emotion in this it will never be shown in a fine art traditional art museum but the heart and soul really shows through we can relate to it You can't imagine yourself, most of us, can't imagine ourselves doing even a Banksy piece, never mind a a Raphael or a, a Picasso. But we can imagine ourselves making these attempts and having something go wrong, and that's fun. It's also fun to look at a piece and really think about what's wrong with it. What is going on in this painting? And it raises the same questions that fine art raises. You know, why was this created? What was in the artist's mind? What alternatives might they have used? The parallels to fine art are are immense. I grew up in Boston, uh, less than a mile from the Museum of Fine Arts, and on rainy days, we would go hang out there. So from the time I was 10 years old, I was around a lot of, you know, very famous, wonderful art. And some of the same responses i have to things in the museum of fine arts i have to things in the museum of bad art but we never have called a museum on it and said you know this is really not that good it's it's up to the curators of each museum to decide on their own but the idea that we have to decide that this is bad and this is good is maybe not useful you know, am I enjoying looking at this and does it make me happy or make me think or, well, then don't worry about what the label is. I mean, I, I laugh a little bit at the um, the popularity of Thomas Kincaid and his paintings of light, but there are people who think they're wonderful and there's no reason that I want to stop them from thinking that. You know, if, if you think that, that that's wonderful, then enjoy it, share it, you know, tell your friends about it. Who gets to say what's good and what's bad? It's unclear (laughs) who or why in some cases. One of the values that we have brought, I think, to some audiences is that when people come into the Museum of Bad Art, they feel perfectly free to disagree with us. And that's fine, but they ought to be doing that everywhere. You know, traditional museums often intimidate people how dare you disagree with what the Metropolitan Museum of Art thinks belongs on the wall. It's hard to do, but we, you know, with us you can, you can disagree. We've had fun, (laughs) that's huge. We've had a lot of fun and we've, we've learned that a lot of the ideas about art that we've had are universal. We have followers all over the world. We've learned that artists are not as we feared at the start worried about having their piece in a museum of bad art because they, artists want someone to see their work. They want, they want attention. And um, we've learned that sometimes a, a fairly ridiculous idea can have legs and can uh, continue and grow.
4: And a special thanks to Monty for the production on that piece and for the storytelling. And a special thanks to Madison for her work on the interview. And thanks to Louise Riley Sacco and you can reach Louise and the Museum of Bad Art at museumofbadart.org to find out more about the museum. By the way, if you're trying to get in, don't try and deliberately make it into the Museum of Bad Art, they'll figure you out. It's just gotta be art that had a good intention, but something went wrong. By the way, I love the logo on the Museum of Bad Art's website. It says, art too bad to be ignored. The story of the Museum of Bad Art, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story from one of the Smith Twins. We previously told their story of how they navigated through ethical dilemmas and built an over-billion-dollar business. Here's Sean talking about what he thought about wealth, money, and success when he was young.
8: I'm a little embarrassed to say that, you know, I think it's very easy for people at that age to keep score by economic ways. and so. When I was that age, goals all, all centered around economics, you know, because it was just an easy measurement, you know, score a basket, you get two points, You know, score a goal, you get a point, you know, so if you are successful in business, you measure it by an economic gain. So I didn't set out, you know, in high school or in college to say, hey, you know, I want to try to make other people successful or, you know, I want to try to help a group of needy people in their pursuit of their passion or activity—it was really—it was self, self-focused. It was—it was—it was. How can I measure success? I can measure it economically, and where did I want to be on the economic spectrum? And so I knew what those goals were, and I knew that that was probably not going to get me there by working for somebody else. To be totally candid with you, it was a very self-focused, very monetary-focused number, and so I knew that for me to get to a certain goal by 30, I had to work for myself, and that goal was to be a millionaire. As defined as having a million dollars in a bank account, so not soft, you know, like I wanted to be a millionaire by age 30, and I knew that it would be hard if I just tried to save to get to a million by age 30, because with taxes and all that, that would mean I'd have to make millions after taxes. So I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I knew that the way to get to, to, to be a millionaire by age 30 would be is to set out and do something on my own. And, you know, fortunately we blew through our numbers and then, so you reset, you just reset the number. And I, I had someone speak to a group of executives at one point and it was, it was a really interesting eye-opener for me and, and the person was speaking about scorekeeping. And there's, you know, I'm a big believer there's three types of people. There's people that live in the future, there's people that live in the now, and there's people that live in the past. And so the people that live in the past view their best days as something that happened in history. So they were the high school star quarterback or they were the the superstar in college or the most popular in college. But whatever they were the, the best at, they believe that's what defines them and that that has passed them by. Then you have people that are in the now and they just really are in the moment. So, you know, they're not always looking at their phone, they're present with you, they see the leaves blowing, they see the weather, they're very, very aware of not only themselves, but their surroundings. And there's people in the future. And those people are always looking forward to something that's. Going to happen. And so when you look at these three people, these three types of people, I'm a big believer that the people that are in the now are people that are very happy because they're present. The people in the past, I don't want to say they're miserable, but they are the least happy because they view their history as, as being their most defining moment or their most promising moments. The people in the future. Are close to the people in the now because most people that are living in the future are hopeful of something not a lot of people that are living in the future are like worried about the future they're really typically hopeful like you know there's something I'm excited about and so I tend to be a future type living person so when I had this speaker speaking at one point and they were talking about the Scorekeepers in society, which are those that measure success by a score, those people are typically not very happy because they always raise the scoreboard. And I saw myself doing that a little bit. So my goal, I want to be a millionaire by age 30. I kind of blew through that. And I'm like, wow, oh, I should just reset that goal a little higher. Blew through that. I'll just reset that goal a little bit higher. At what point is it high enough? You know, so I said, this makes no sense for me to measure success by an economic advantage or an economic score. I should be measuring, you know, how I live my life differently. And so at one point in my life, I thought my goal is I'm gonna be on the Forbes 400 list. That was really important to me. I still believe I could get there if I totally focused on it, but does that matter to me? Not, not so much. What matters more to me is, 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 you know, am I leaving a legacy that's really important for those around me? And if all I'm focused on is, is the next score, the next financial objective, I guarantee I'm not going to be on my deathbed going, you know, I wish I would have just pushed a little harder and made a little more at the expense of how much it cost me. So in my 20s, my brother and I didn't take vacations. Like vacations, they didn't help my score. Like a vacation meant I was not working, which meant I was spending, which meant I wasn't saving, which meant I wasn't gonna make a million by 30. So, you know, raising scoreboards is fine as long as you have a balance. So for me, the scoreboard wasn't just all about the economics and, 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 and that probably didn't hit me until I started having kids, started building a family. And even a little later than that, probably when I hit caught maybe 40 years old, and I started asking myself, what is this all about? Am I working for myself? Am I working for some kind of title? Am I working for some type of recognition? Or am I really working for a purpose? And then what is that purpose? And that's where we spend our time, who we spend it with, and then what impact is it having? Our legacy is not what I die with. My legacy is how are my kids gonna behave as good citizens with a purpose, not a self-fulfilling purpose, but a purpose that is driven around a God-centered life. And, And then not just them, but can we impact their kids and then their kids? So can we continue to pass down from generation to generation a vision for the family, a purpose and a value that further enrich themselves and enrich others. And if you can have impact on on folks that don't otherwise have the environments that we're growing up in, and you know, my kids don't worry about whether or not they are gonna have lunch today. My kids don't worry about whether or not they have internet to do school. They worry about whether or not they have internet to do gaming. You know, that's a totally different environment. So when I hear that, you're worried about the speed of your internet so you can stream, you know, as fast as you can on a game. And other kids are trying to figure out where they're going to go to bed at night or if they're going to have web communication so they can deal with online schooling. I want our kids to keep those things in perspective.
4: And a special thanks to Joey and Alex for their work on that piece. And a thanks to Sean Smith for sharing his story. And you know, that's what happens in life, folks. That word success, it can define you or you can define it. And you're better off defining the word, you and your marriage mate or you and your business partner, because in the end, it'll end up being money or some other status benchmark. And you'll end up miserable. It's just a guarantee you'll end up miserable. And we love to tell stories because that's how we walk into these problems and these conundrums in our life is how do we define these words? You can look at a guy driving in a really fancy car and think, what a lucky SOB. But he may be just wanting to drive that car straight off a bridge. And by the way, the brothers do their charitable work and investing together and have formed a group to do that called Castellan. They're interested in working with families as well, other families. And you can check them out at castellangroup.com. B A S T E L L A N group.com. Sean Smith's story, a story about success and its meaning, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now we bring you a story from one of our regular contributors, Bill Brake, about his experience learning to ride a horse at the age of 60. Some months ago,
7: I went to see someone about a horse. Back in 30s screwball comedies, that phrase meant stepping out for a drink. In my case, that wasn't my intention. I'd never ridden in my life. I'd been moved by two things. First, by a personal loss. Now, as in the past, grief overcame my loathing of change. Second, a concern that I'd spent my life writing about other people's lives rather than living my own. That may be untrue, as I've had a few adventures, but the worry preyed on me. I knew I was comfortable with domestic animals despite the barrier of language. I knew other ways in which I could communicate my respect and affection for a thinking creature with whom I could not speak. Another was a long time fascination with obsolescent technologies, sailing ships and steam locomotives, things that worked but had proven uneconomical against the internal combustion engine. I was intrigued by the notion that their operation and maintenance were becoming lost arts. And so, what of the horse, which had remained a commonplace of transportation into my father's youth some 80 years ago, which, for a cavalryman at the charge, meant delivering a living projectile, 1,200 pounds of mass and 3 feet of steel charging at 30 miles per hour. Over 30 years ago, I'd been a staff officer in the Guard. I'd known a number of older men whose careers had begun in the pre-armored cavalry. I remembered one retired colonel whom I'd met at a funeral when he stepped out of his cab in faultless dress blues, decorations, and saber with riding boots, spurs, and pinks, breeches in a shade of khaki that looked almost pink in the sunlight, the last three being no longer in the uniform regulations. Some idiot asked him whether he'd been in the army. He brusquely replied, no, cavalry. In those days, this eccentricity of apparel was his privilege as he had been trained to ride horses into battle, sword in hand, and the cavalry was a romantic memory in the army. He'd been an extra in the Errol Flynn version of the Charge of the Light Brigade. The Colonel was not a sensitive man, and yet I was struck by his disgust as became a cavalryman of the studio's treatment of its horses, at least 25 of which had been frivolously killed in making the picture. These interests intersect in an early 2017. How do humans and horses work together? Could I deal with an animal five times my size? What was the physical experience of riding? Could I take a horse to a trot, a canter, a gallop? Could I take him over a fence? It was as much about my character, perhaps even the courage to get back in the saddle after being thrown. It was as much about knowledge of myself as of the animal. So I went to Stoddard, New Hampshire, where I met Julio. His stable is owned by a woman whose writings on equestrianism led me to think that she was inclined to an unsentimental yet affectionate relationship between horse and rider. This appealed to me. The basis of any relationship between horse and rider seemed to lay in grooming. Julio enjoyed having his hooves cleaned and being curry-combed and then brushed with hard, medium, and soft brushes. I then went over his mane and tail with a steel brush. This took about 45 minutes, after which Julio nudged me with his muzzle and then kissed me on the right cheek. This was the first time I'd been kissed by a male five times my weight. It did not terrify me. The instructor guided me in saddling the horse, which is a time-consuming and necessary process for the comfort and safety of horse and rider, and lent me a helmet. I was already in an old pair of chinos and rubber wellington boots, which had enough of a heel to keep me safely in the stirrups. The helmet intrigued me. Having read and reflected on Marcus Aurelius's meditations, I didn't particularly mind dying after taking a header. Whatever is intended for me thereafter is beyond my control, and the gods mean me no evil. But as a lover, husband, and gentleman, I would not want Mimi to have a drooling idiot on her hands for the next three decades. So although the helmet was uncomfortably snug, I wore it. My instructor insisted that I place myself either to Julio's left or his right when fiddling with his hind hooves, hind quarters, or whatever. I thought of Copenhagen. Not the Danish city, but the Duke of Wellington's charger at Waterloo. After the day of battle, the Duke had dismounted, exhausted from some 20 hours in the saddle, riding from unit to unit throughout the day to observe, command, and inspire. He patted the horse on the rump. In the wild, the horse is a prey animal. He prefers to run, but he can defend himself. think of this from Copenhagen's point of view. Yeah, lots of noisy stuff today. Okay. Bullets whizzing by. Okay. A cannonball flies over my neck and takes off the arm of the nice guy to my left. Okay. The general to my right losing his leg to another cannonball. Okay. Long day, lots of stress. Okay. For Copenhagen, it had all been okay. All horses like to work. It's, It's their karma. Copenhagen had been trained to work in battle, to remain calm amidst gunfire, trumpet calls, and screaming men. On that day, as on many before, he had done his job. As the Duke later said of him, using a word that for the English means guts, there may have been many faster horses, no doubt many handsomer, but for bottom and endurance I never saw his fellow. If the Duke an unsentimental man had not himself been worn out he might have sensed that copenhagen too had spent the day suppressing his fear of shot and shell practicing that quality we call courage the duke's touch surprised the horse who lashed out with both hind legs happily for the duke he missed anyway i led julio from the barn to the mounting block and listening to my instructor every inch of the way climbed up I put my left foot in the stirrup and hoisted myself into the saddle. It took more effort than I'd expected, but then I was about to turn 62. With my instructor's help, I put my right foot into the stirrup. Then, as directed by the instructor, I squeezed my legs and Julio began walking. A rider must move in rhythm with the horse. As a beginner, I had years of learning ahead of me. We walked for a bit along a muddy path. Then the instructor had me press my legs together again. Julio began trotting. This is how one learns how to ride. I rose about an inch above the saddle and came down hard. I thought my seat had been shoved into my stern. I wondered whether Theodore Roosevelt had felt like this as he trotted Little Texas up San Juan Hill in 1898. I didn't think so. Having some self-respect, I didn't scream. Instead, I took a deep breath, which Julio has been trained to know as a signal to stop. Then I learned to make him turn, press his left side and he turns right, press his right side and he turns left, and to circle. I remember once hearing someone explain, left spur turn to the right, right spur turn to the left. While I would prefer not to spur a horse, it's still good to know. All horses will test you to see whether you're ready to take command. If you are not, they will take command for their own safety, and the rider may become merely an inconvenient ornament to be discarded as quickly as possible. Once Julio realized that I was gently determined to command, had some physical courage, and had no foolish intentions, he deferred to me. It's his nature once he realizes the rider is in control. I think we'll get along. Then I took him back to the stable. Oddly dismounting was more intimidating than the rest of the process. I successfully took my right foot out of the stirrup, pulled my right leg up and over Julio's back with my weight on the left stirrup, loosed my left foot and dropped, fell, might be more accurate, some three feet to the ground. So I know something about caring for a horse and how to direct him. I know how much I have to learn before I can understand what a rider needs to know. I know enough to know my ignorance, which is always good. Someday I may even be a horseman.
4: And what a delightful story by Bill Braiken. What a daring thing to do in your early 60s. We fall harder when we're older. And you're going to fall. That's just what's going to happen if you ride a horse. It was as much about knowledge of self, the knowledge of the animal, Bill said. And that is true. That is the big part of that game is commanding the horse and doing it without speaking. Bill Breik's daring new hobby, riding horses. A beautiful story. Bill Breik's story here on Our American Stories.
7: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast.